Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us all. We are overwhelmed by your grace and goodness that you have called us, that you have blessed us so abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that you've given us forgiveness of sins. You've given us hope and a a home in the heavens that will not be taken away. And Lord, we come to you today um, desiring you to work in our midst. We think of the people who are enduring terrible fires at this time and the fireys that are serving there in New South Wales and Queensland, and we pray that your hand of mercy be upon them, that you would strengthen them, and lives would be saved, and homes would be spared, and your glory would um, shine through this terrible tragedy. And we pray, Lord, for uh, all people who are suffering today, whether near or far, that you would draw them near to yourself by your grace. And Lord, amongst us who are suffering, who are going through hard times, we pray that you would open our eyes to see you. And if things are fine and we feel all is well in our world, Lord, help us to see our need to return to you and to seek your face because you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Amos chapter 3, if you'll turn there, starting in verse 9. When it comes to disasters, uh, you can only be so prepared, right? When I, I grew up in a place that was prone to earthquakes in Southern California, and they always, every year or so, they would have, a, 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 I guess during the news or something, they'd remind people, you know, be ready for the big one because it could happen at any time. Uh, so put your water in storage and, and get some, make sure that the flashlights and your torches work and have some canned food on hand and uh, a first aid kit and a radio that you can wind up to hear the news. And I mean, it was pretty full on. They, they were like saying it could be really serious. Uh, when I worked at San Diego State University under, in an underground tunnel, I was surprised that there was a Cold War nuclear fallout shelter down there with all these olive-colored barrels and, you know, biscuits and clothing and hygiene items and just rows on this dark corridor. And it's like, wow, I didn't even know this existed. Um, and you can be totally prepared for that, right? But I mean, no one can really be prepared for a nuclear bomb to fall or a fire that, that tears through your neighborhood. And you can mentally prepare for it, but still be shocked when it strikes. And uh, that's a similar situation to what we find in Amos. Amos was a sheep breeder. He was a picker of fruit, like he was a harvester. And he had no aspiration to be a prophet, but God called him to go from Jerusalem to the northern kingdom to roar against them, to to say, hey, there is a fire going to come out from God because of the sin upon all these nations. But don't think because you're God's people that there won't be judgment coming to you because you've erred. No, you'll be held accountable too. So it was Edom and Moab and all these surrounding nations, but he took aim at Israel as well. And he wasn't directed like Jonava to go to a people who did not regard God or know God. These were people who claimed to be loyal to God. These were ones who offered sacrifices to God with regularity. They brought of their tithes. And it was a, it was a time in their history of really unparalleled um, like wealth, prosperity. It was a time of ease and rest. For a hundred years, they hadn't known really war or famine or pestilence or difficulty and yet here's Amos telling them that these things are coming as a direct judgment of the Lord and for a purpose to get them to acknowledge their need to return to God 
So he's talking to people who don't think they're far from God. They think they know God and they're with God and God's with them. But he says, guys, you need to return to God. And even a little drift is disaster. So we're in Amos 3, starting in verse 9. Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces of the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her. For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. Amos has gone from Jerusalem to proclaim the word of the Lord in Bethel against Bethel. He's, he's speaking against the altar that was there. And he says, hey, people in Ashdod, people in Egypt, pay attention. Those were places, Ashdod, that was a chief city of the Philistines. Egypt, of course, they knew a place of slavery and bondage. They would be notorious for their sin and abominations. Like if you said, you know, like, let's, that would not be a good association with Ashdod or Egypt. But he's saying, hey, Ashdod, Egypt, check out Israel. You could up your game of sin and abomination by watching them. It's like, wow, that's pretty heavy. Um, it's, it's reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 5.1, where Paul, he calls out people in the church for having this incestuous relationship and saying, this kind of stuff isn't even acceptable in the pagan culture that you're living in, and yet you're promoting it and approving of it in the church. So he, is, he, he condemned that. And uh, we see here in Samaria, there was... He said, you're going to see the oppression and also the consequences for sin. Like, take note of what's going on in Samaria. Naboth's case in 1 Kings 21 is a great example of this, of the oppression and the theft and injustice. Naboth was a righteous man, and he happened to have land that was close to Ahab, the king's land. And Ahab's like, man, that would be a great herb garden for me. And so he offers him money. But Naboth, he's like, how could I sell the inheritance I've been given from God to you? He wasn't interested in the king's favor. He wasn't interested in the king's money. And so Ahab went home sad, and Jezebel's like, why are you so depressed? You're the king. Why, why are you so sad today? And he says, ah, oh, I want to buy that vineyard, but Naboth won't give it to you. She's like, I'll take care of it. So she sends some letters. She proclaims a feast. She gets people to lie about Naboth and say that he blasphemed. They stoned him with stones. He died, and then Ahab was all excited. He gets to go take possession of the vineyard. So that is an example of the oppression of the, the wealthy and the ruling class um, asserting their authority in a sinful way, in a selfish way, and oppressing the people. They were, using, they were getting away with murder. They were using positions of power to benefit themselves and... God had already said, we think about loving God and loving your neighbor as a New Testament thing, but it's, it's as old as the law. Leviticus 19, 17, 18, God said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Instead of loving their neighbor, society was full of Hatred, vengeance, theft, oppression. It was like a cannibalistic society where they were 
swallowing up the wealth of one another to enrich themselves. So God's like, I'm going to send enemies to surround you. They're going to sap you of strength. They're going to loot the looters. You've been looting one another? Well, the enemies are going to surround you and take what you have. And the wickedness that you have done, God will return upon your own head. At this time, again, there, it seemed like the prosperity had no end. And this babbler from Jerusalem, you know, who is he? They're, I bet they were offended to hear him. He continued in verse 12. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed or on the edge of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. That was a practice as a, a shepherd, if you were watching over someone else's sheep, that if a sheep or a goat was stolen by a lion or a predator, you were required to bring evidence that the animal had been eaten. That you, it was to provide, um, it was to protect against unscrupulous shepherds who would say, oh, I guess that, she that sheep is gone. But really they had sold it. So if you didn't have a sheep, if there was a sheep missing, you left, uh, came back with a couple less sheep that day, you were required to go find them or to provide evidence that they had been eaten. And, you know, a piece of an ear, a couple of leg bones, that would be proof that, hey, I didn't sell it, I didn't eat it, and claim, like I didn't benefit, I didn't steal the sheep and, and uh, claim that it had been lost, but it's a reality. They'd have to pay for it if they lost it. And God said, anyone who thinks they're going to escape judgment, I'll compare you to a piece of an ear or a leg that the shepherd gathers up. That's not good condition, right? An ear that can't hear, a leg that's not connected to a body that can't walk. So this is the condition of Samaria. This is how Israel is going to be. That even if you're hiding out in your grand home, hiding under the bed, the enemy will come and find you. And you'll all be accounted for, every last one of you. Punishment for sin would come. It would be complete and without remedy because they refused to turn. Now the Bible, we know, you know it says the soul that sins will surely die. But haven't we sinned and we didn't drop dead? So we can almost become a bit callous to the fact that sin is deadly and damaging and it separates us from God and we can abuse the grace and the patience of God as a license to sin, as almost permission. I think the human body provides a great example because God has given us bodies that he designed to heal and be restored. You know, like you ever get a cut and the body has this natural healing process. And uh, there's all sorts of things that we can ingest and eat, and inject, and snort, and uh, that are not healthy. They do not promote our health, but they don't kill us instantly. And so we just think, hey, you know, there's an upside here. We don't realize the downside. And there's people that have bought tobacco products that have all these warnings over them for decades, and then are still shocked when there's a cancer diagnosis. Like they, ne they didn't see it coming, because you don't think it's going to be you, right? 
I mean, none of us who have, who have had a tragedy and you've heard of like a death in the family and it was just a shock that it would happen. You just think it could not have happened to us. It could not happen there. And that's how the feeling was in Samaria. Like we're God's people. We're not going to have trouble here because he's our God. He's going to protect us. And when you've heard a warning so many times, you become dull. It loses the initial impact. Being dull of hearing is not limited to unbelievers in the scripture. It'd be very convenient for us to say, oh yeah, it's the people in the world that are dull of hearing. But it's actually applied to people in the church. Turn to Hebrews 5, starting in verse 9. Dull of hearing. It's like forgetful, like in one ear, out the other, or over the head, or just ignored, forgotten. Hebrews 5, verse 9 is where it begins. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. It seems that there was a, there was a bit of a regression of the people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, where he's saying, like, there's a lot that you have known, but because you haven't practiced it, because you haven't believed it and done it, it's instead of progressing and, and maturing, you're actually needing milk now instead of solid food. So I can't even speak to you about the deeper things because you become a bit dull and senseless. And then he begins to explain a bit more, which is good. So back to the Amos passage. God, God is speaking the truth through Amos to their faces. Now, the design of the altar in Bethel, it would have those horns on the, on the corners. And a horn is a symbol of strength, power. You know, when an ox has a horn and it's using it to, to uh, gore things, it, there's a lot of power involved. And we read of Adonijah and Joab running into the tabernacle and laying hold of those horns. It was a place of refuge where they could grab those horns and... and hopefully escape judgment. Now we know Adonijah, he held, and there was a reprieve to his judgment, but Joab, because of his murderous ways, there was none. And God said, I'm going to cut the horns off the altar. So your refuge is going to be gone. There's going to be no hope of sparing yourselves the judgment because of your doings and your refusal to return. You can't find refuge in your altar because you haven't sought refuge in me. It was God in whom they were to seek refuge. Not your summer home or your winter home. Like It's like they sought refuge from the heat by traveling to another location. They sought refuge from the cold by going to another place. But he's like, there's no refuge from the judgment because you haven't sought refuge in me. They, it talks about their houses of ivory, these great houses they built by the prophets of oppression. And it's not wealth that was the problem. It was the unbelief, selfishness, pride, greed that ruined them. Moving on to Amos 4 verse 1. 
Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks and your prosperity with fish hooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. God is not afraid to say things that we find offensive or distasteful. And it's like, he did not hold back, does he? Um, he, he, he directs this rebuke to the cows of Bash, Bashan, the upper class women in the Jewish society. And I don't think anyone ever, for all time, has appreciated being called a cow. Right? Like, it's just not a very attractive or nice thing to be called. It, it's not a good comment. It's not, it's not good. I mean, you could try that to endear yourself to someone, but I really recommend against it. They're living on the mountains in luxury. Um, the Enduring Word Commentary says, These women may not have been directly involved in mistreating the poor, but their incessant demands for luxuries drove their husbands to even greater injustice. And the word husbands there, it's, it's an odd word to be used for husband. It actually is sovereign or master. So there's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek here where it's taking aim at the husbands who were lackeys to their wives' demands and not following God, not trusting in God. And so God swears by his holiness. His holiness does not change. He swears by his unchanging character that you and your children, you'll be dragged through the streets with fish hooks. Um, and God would send the Assyrians in 721 BC to Samaria, a nation known for their fearful and brutal tactics and their treatment of their enemies and prisoners. They were known for skinning their victims alive. Remember Nineveh? That's why Jonah really hated the Ninevites is because of their terrible reputation and the awful things they did. I mean, they, they bragged about the things that they did. They would put a hook through your jaw or through your lips, and they would string people together, and they would just march you until you died. And then they would take you to your family's graves of your ancestors, and they would have you grind the bones to dust. And, and they, th they celebrated this. This was part of their uh, national ethos of how, how strong we are, and they, they were brutal. And so the walls in which they trusted, he said, those walls are going to be broken with holes and you're going to walk right through them to your deaths, to the, through these holes in the, in the thing that you trusted the most, in the thing that you sought refuge behind, I'm going to remove that from you as well. I'm going to throw you out of the land. I mean, when I read of things like this, devastating, I'm struck by how largely I have been insulated from this kind of thing in my life. A lot of us have. Uh, in the U.S. and Australia, the places where I've lived, I I've never been in a city that was invaded. I've never been in a, a, a house that was bombed during the night. I've never woken up in the morning and the street that I expected to take to work is no longer there or the bridge is out because the enemy has occupied it. Like, that's just so foreign to my, my life. People in my generation have never been drafted to fight in a war. We've never had strict rations of water and petrol and food. Um, it's been 74 years since a nuclear bomb has been dropped on a city with people. 
and the, the current conflicts in Syria and Afghanistan, they seem far away because we're not awakened by bombs or shelling during the night. We're not hearing the fallout uh, shelter sirens blaring and waking us up and living in that fear. We don't know what that's like. And Amos is speaking to people for a hundred years. I've experienced peace and prosperity. But a day of judgment was coming. I mean, when I woke up this morning and, or yesterday, it was like, man, this is a cool, beautiful day. But in other places in New South Wales, it was not a cool, beautiful day. It was hot, and it was brutal, and it was deadly, and it was devastating with those fires. But it can seem very far away, and if I didn't have the internet, I wouldn't have even known about it. I would have had no idea. And so God is like bringing this revelation to them. And he's saying, this is your future apart from me. Unless you return to me, this is what's happening. I wonder if Amos spoke these words to me, would I believe him? Would I actually listen to him? Would I say, oh yeah. Or would I say, no, nah, I don't need healing. I don't need to return. I mean, I'm, I trust God. I serve God. Why should I listen to you? But Amos is speaking to me. And he's speaking to all of us. I think the wise listen to him and will respond to him. Amos 4, verse 4, Come to Bethel and transgress. As at Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Also I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. God lays the satire on thick here uh, to point out their folly. So it's almost a humorous way to show just how silly they had become because the irony was they were doing these things. They were sacrificing. They were bringing their tithes, but they were sacrificing in violation to God's law. They weren't going to Jerusalem as he commanded. They were sacrificing to these calves in Bethel and in Dan. And they were thinking that they were earning God's favor by disobeying him, by entering into idolatry. And they thought they were just racking up points with God. But they were doing the exact opposite. They spared no expense to sacrifice, but their aim was to impress people. It's like you, you announce before your, your uh, sacrifices. And you love it. You love getting attention for your sacrifice and for how you're honoring God. To obey is better than sacrifice, but the people love their religious activities. They love the respect and the honor for men. They love doing more than somebody else so they could feel better about themselves and find fault with others. Hearts of men did not change over the years. Remember Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He compared them to whitewashed tombs. He says, you're all clean and white and, uh, you know, you look pretty holy on the outside, but inside, you're like, it's full of rottenness, and it's foul, and it's like dead men's bones inside. Like, clean the inside of the cup, as well as the outside. We read that the women would cover their heads to show their humility, and some were proud about it. That's ironic, right? I'm going to show my humility, but I'm proud of how humble I am. 
or Gentiles, they return to the law to please Jews rather than obeying the word of God through Jesus Christ, that he is now their Sabbath. It's not about observing the things that you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath day. It's about following Jesus Christ who is our Sabbath and our rest is in him. It's not about being circumcised in your flesh. It's about having the word of God being born again and having his word written upon your heart, being led by the Holy Spirit, who will always lead us into truth and righteousness. What was the result of their pride, oppression, and idolatry? It says God gave them cleanness of teeth in all their cities. It's not like he was giving them good dental hygiene. It's a clever way of saying no food. There was nothing to eat. They had no meat. They had no bread stuck in their teeth because they weren't eating. So he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you cleanness of teeth in all of your cities. In chapter 3, God had said what would happen. He had already said this a long time ago in the law. This should not have been a surprise to them because he said, if you ever forsake my law, if you ever um, leave and depart from me, these are the things that will happen to you in your cities and in your families and with your crops and with the rains and all these things. The famine, the drought, because of their sin, it should not have been a surprise. Now, if God wanted to wipe out a nation from the earth, does he need to employ famine to do it? Like famine is like a slow death. After years and years and years, it takes a long time. So we can think of a slow death as a cruel torture, right? If we said, oh, that's a slow death. I want it to be quick. I want it to be painless. I want it to just be over before it even begins. Uh, But see, God, in his grace, he gave them a slow death through famine, so that they would have daily opportunities to return to him because he didn't want to see them destroyed. It did not give him any delight to have the wicked perish. He wanted to see them turn and be saved. So he he, he kept giving them opportunities to repent. In Jeremiah 18, he talks about, you know, the instant I speak concerning a kingdom to pull it down and destroy it, if if they repent of their evil, I'll spare them. God's judgment was not instant, it was by degrees because he's long-suffering, because he's patient, because he wants to see people live. He wants people to be saved. But cleanness of teeth was not going to have the desired effect, so things would be ramped up in Amos 4, verse 7. Because remember where he says, yet you did not return to me. That's what he wants. He wanted his people to return to him because they were already headed to destruction. The only salvation would be for them to come back to him, to return to him. That was their only hope, him. He was their only chance. And they had already erred from him. They had already gone astray, but he's trying to get them to come back. He's trying to get their attention. Amos 4, verse 7, I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. 
I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with the sword along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. It struck me that in our Western culture, we would likely make the mistake of attributing these trials or difficulties to natural consequences independent of God. And we could blame the government for inadequate policies or farming for mismanaging the land or something. Um, In our culture, with the vast um, changes of the global, um, I guess, trade, Essential foods can be sourced from different lands. We can have a drought in one area of the world, but it just means that it's carted over from another country. It may cost more, but we can still get what we want. You guys have gone to one shop and, oh, they're out of this, and you can just drive another couple Ks and find it somewhere else. You may have to pay more than you want, but really we can get anything we want, right? Or you could just order it online. Send it from overseas. And because we're not farmers whose lives depend upon the land or have flocks and herds, we don't acutely feel the pinch of drought like those folks do or the blight caused by fungus or mildew on our crops or pests. Um, and in the law, God warned, this is, these are the consequences for sin and departing from me. One might hope that because God had done these things and was doing them amongst them uh, and ramping it up by increments that they would realize, hey, wait a second, this is different. God, God is doing something here. Like he's withholding rain from one city. Instead of seeking refuge in the Lord or going to the Lord and saying, Lord, why didn't we get the rain this year that we prayed for? They went to another city, right? So they just branched out. Instead of going to the Lord, and they, to quench their thirst, they went to other people rather than to God. It says, he blasted them with mildew and locusts consumed, yet they did not return to God. He sent plagues upon them. Their horses are dying, and there's the stench of death in their camps. And they never said, what's going on? Why is this happening? Isn't that a natural thing for us, that when a bad thing happens, we wonder why it happens? Because we don't want to have it repeated in the future. So if there's an explosion at a factory, there will be an inquiry into it to see where did we make the mistake? Where was the fault? How can we prevent this from happening in the future? Have you guys learned that we often have to learn things the hard way? Huh? That means personal experience and painful experience, usually. Like we're a bit naive, we're not very cautious, and we may have been warned about something, but it's not until we suffer that we realize that was bad, and I need to not do that anymore. I need to be more careful when I'm putting the wood through the table saw. Not to use my fingers, use a stick. My dad had been pushing... Uh, wood through a table saw for 30, 40 years before he uh, left a few of the tips of his fingers behind. He pushes through wood a little differently now. Now, see, I can look at that, and I'm like, oh, it's just one cut, and I can do it with my hand. 
or I could use a stick. I could learn from him without losing my fingertips. Now, it would be presumptuous to assume that there has been a drought in New South Wales because of a particular sin. Our role is to seek the Lord in the matter as a nation and as a person individually. Jesus, I read this morning, he says, you know, famine, troubles are going to increase in the last days. These things need to happen, but don't lose hope, right? There, there will be an uptick in earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, but that will happen before the end. So we know that this is going to happen. But there was a time we read of in David's life where there had been a famine for three years. 2 Samuel 21, verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. David was observant. It's like, okay, there's a famine one year. Okay, chalk it up to bad uh, planting or just not enough rain. But then there was another year. And then there was a third year. And he's like, hold on. Let me inquire of the Lord. And you may say, man, it took him three years to inquire of the Lord about that famine. You know, there's people, crops, uh, whole villages suffering. Well, at least he did. Sometimes there could be something going on in our lives for 20 years and we don't think to inquire of the Lord. Why is this happening? Why is this the case? But he seeks the Lord and the Lord gives him this really specific answer. You know, it's not just the kings that are supposed to do this. Every person who fears the Lord is to inquire of the Lord, to seek the Lord. Imagine if, the, if all the people in the northern kingdom, they see mildew on one leaf and they say, Lord, it's said in your word that mildew could be the result of sin. Am I sinning? This blight of my crops, they're getting prematurely scorched by the wind. Is this, why is this happening, Lord? Have I departed from you in some way? That if, imagine if everyone in the kingdom had that heart and that desire to seek the Lord. Amos wouldn't be having this conversation with them because they'd have returned to the Lord a long time ago. But they went to another town. They ordered their stuff from another village. They sacrificed to idols to change their circumstances rather than putting their faith in God and seeking him. So this is the question. What does it take for God to get your attention so you'll stop going about life as usual, stop, and return to the Lord? What does it take? Now, if you're in Christ today, I'll say you've had at least that experience one time. I expect you've had that experience many times. But the first time when you were arrested by the gospel and you were brought to your knees in repentance and you realize that the way I am heading, it's to death for eternity. And Jesus is giving me a way of life and salvation and healing and hope. That happened at least once in your life. Now, maybe there were some really drastic things that brought about that interaction. Like, do you need that again? Or do you need more than that? Like, what does God have to do to get your attention? Will it take bombs dropping in the night? Financial ruin? Being at death's door due to starvation? Now, brothers and sisters, let's not imagine that any one of those things will be of any use for a hardened, unrepentant heart. 
because it wasn't doing the job for these folks in northern Israel. So don't put your hope in life getting worse, like it's, oh man, when things get bad, then I'll turn. Maybe not. Not if this is an example to us. So let's learn from this example and return to him ourselves. Let's seek the Lord. Think about all the things God did, people didn't listen. Think about all the miracles Jesus did, and people didn't believe in him. Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus, and he says, you're going about your business, you're serving, you're doing great works, but you have left your first love. So remember from where you've fallen, and do again the first things. Like, come back to me. Your work is all, there's a lot of it that involves me allegedly, but how about coming back to me? Remember, remember. Remembering and repentance is how we return. Remembering God, remembering what he's done, what he's promised. An example of how we ought to return, we see in the prodigal son. That parable, there's this young man, he's grown up in uh, what seems to be a pretty wealthy, luxurious home. He's born into this life, and at some point he's like, I want my inheritance for me. Before, I mean, it's kind of like, Dad, I, I want what's mine. And his dad graciously gave it to him. And he went to a far country and he partied and he spent it on women and friends and wine and, and found himself um, bankrupt. Without money, he gets a job feeding pigs. It's pretty long fall from grace. And, and he came to his senses one day because he's feeding the pigs and he realizes the pig food's looking pretty good. And he's like, man, I remember what it was like living in my dad's house. And, and the life that I used to have, it was way better than what I'm going through now. So if I go back just begging to be brought back as a servant, maybe he'll have me back. That's my only hope here. And so he goes home. What did he have to give up but his pride? So with the deep sense of his own fault and his unworthiness, he approaches his dad and he has this rehearsed speech, but his dad just like grabs him and hugs him and says, oh, my son who was dead, he's now back. And he puts the ring on his finger, puts the shoes on his feet, and he receives him as a son, not as a slave or a servant, because he loved him and he celebrated his return. He was restored. Just prayed about, Lord, what does this mean to return to you for us? You know, people who are in Christ, people who know God, people who are serving the Lord, who want God to be glorified through their lives, who aren't in this, you know, we, we have sin to repent of every day, but who aren't um, knowingly loaded with a particular sin that it's a total battle every day. Just really believe the Lord's saying, returning to him, it means giving him your life to a degree, so it should be complete, but in a greater degree than you ever have before. In light of who he is and our unworthiness, not coming back to him as you know, a privileged child who's making demands of God, but broken for our sin and saying, Lord, I have gone from you. I have thought I have been self-sufficient. I have been self-confident. I have been going my own way, but I'm going to come back to you today 
and give myself to you like I never have, like I did at the beginning, but because it's not just a commitment. We need to return, return to him. That's our only hope. He is our hope, not us returning. See, that's where you can get it wrong. Like my only hope is if I return. No, he is calling you. He is inviting you. Your hope is in him alone. Amos 4, verse 12, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. So God said, because you haven't returned, I'm going to do as I've promised Enemies will surround you. Horns of the altars will be cut off. Your homes will be destroyed. You'll be taken captive like a, uh, you know, you'll resemble that, that bone stripped of meat. It's kind of a gruesome, sad picture. And then there's this ominous, ominous concerning, I mean, considering the context, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. <laughs> Get ready. Steal yourself it's like a summons or a subpoena where you've just been served by God who is the judge, not just of Israel, but who created the universe, who made the nations. He's, he presides over the court. And it doesn't matter if you regard God or not because he is your God. He is the God of all things. Our maker the one who forms mountains, who creates the wind, who knows the thoughts of your heart before you even speak, who makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth. He is the supreme I am, the one who created all things. Now, you guys know better than to stir up a, a nest of fire ants, right? If you saw a nest of fire ants, you wouldn't go just do a dance right in the middle of it or roll around just for fun. Uh, it would not be fun. <laughs> It'd be terrible. You know better than to, uh, to walk between a, a mother bear and her cubs. Not a good call. You, you know you're circumspect enough to know that's a terrible idea, bad thing to do. You wouldn't be touching live wires to your fingers just to see what would happen. Like, I wonder if it'll hurt. Will it make a sound? Will I be awake? <laughs> I don't know. He says, you know, Stirring up Leviathan. Don't even think about it. You know better. Now, shouldn't we tremble before God? Should we walk offending him without repentance? When he invites us to come, he's the one who's going to chase us. He's going to follow us. And he wants to restore us. And I love about our God is he is not bloodthirsty. He's not deceitful. He does not lie. He's not a thief. He's not greedy. He is good. He is merciful. He is a savior. He has not treated us according to our iniquities because if he did, we'd have been dead in hell forever already. But by his grace, he has, he has kept us. He has spoken to us. He has revealed himself to, through his word. And he's made a way for us to be forgiven and to have eternal life and, and not just a second chance, but a new beginning. Without him, there's no hope for us. Like, it's crazy. You could try to put together a fire plan, and you could 
gather up all the water or the, the best. You can be as planned as possible, but it's not necessarily enough. God is far greater and more powerful than any act of nature, any disaster that you can imagine. And yet, he has made a way for us to be preserved forever, rejoicing, having peace and rest in him. Because he's made the way. We can't do it on our own. There's no hope in us. But in him, praise the Lord. He has revealed himself as that good shepherd. He comes to us and he, he invites us. If you're hungry, come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. In me, you will find rest for your souls. He came, Jesus Christ came as a suffering servant, but will return as a conquering king. And when you read those descriptions of him in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation 19, what will be the manner of your meeting when he says, prepare to meet your God? It will be dependent on whether we return to him or not. Are you prepared to meet your God? When you think of meeting Jesus is that something that fills you with trepidation when you see him with his robe dipped in blood where he opens his mouth and there's that two-edged sword just smiting the nations? He is awesome. He is glorious. Now, perhaps we're like the nation of Israel. We, we're in a season of prosperity and ease without fear. And we're not convinced that we need to return to the Lord at all. Maybe we're like the prodigal, who God has used trouble to remind us. The situations of life have made it very clear that we actually used to be in a loving environment, a loving relationship with God, but we haven't known that for a while. And we, we left our first love, like the church in Ephesus. The call is for all of us to return to the Lord, to prepare ourselves to meet him. Meet him right now, not just when you're, you're on your deathbed or some distant time where you it's contrived you you don't know how many years you have left on this earth but let's remember who he is and return to him in repentance and what what love and hope we have in him what grace he has shown us what compassion and mercy that he would know us like he does and want us to be with him want us to come to him he draws he draws near to embrace you so let's go to him let's return let's pray lord thank you that you are so gracious and good that we are the fickle ones we are the forgetful ones we are the wanderers we are those who despair and who in our hopelessness seek refuge in things that cannot save us and we seek hope and help from people who who cannot save us either thank you lord that you have given us a way through jesus christ to have new life that we can be born again that we can that you're there to return to oh lord forgive us when we forget forgive us when we become hard and we we wander and we're stubborn, Lord. I'm stubborn. 
Lord, I pray that you would purge us of our sins, that you would cause us to come near to you and experience the loving presence that you are, that as you correct us and you chasten us, we would listen to you, we would return to you, we would be preparing ourselves, and Lord, it's only you who can prepare us, that we would be prepared to meet you and that you would meet us here right now. Lord, we are unworthy, but we come before you in faith, believing that you are good, believing that you will do healing in this place, believing that you will work in this place, that you will restore our hearts to yourself, and you would fill us with awe of your goodness to us all, your grace, and that we would rejoice and celebrate you and the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so privileged, and we love you and honor you. Thank you for these words, Lord, that are hard to hear. And thank you that you, you do give us rest and hope where there is none. In Jesus' name, amen.